Welcome to Lost in a Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And uh, today we have come to chapter 29 of Exodus, which I know our beloved listeners are going to be just thrilled by this. It's another long chapter all about ritual. Are you excited, Daniel? I have been planning for it for months. Yeah, yeah. I've been uh, putting my arm through the garments of other people while they're still wearing them and waving them around. Um, it's, it's like uh, character acting, method acting. It's, yeah, it's made me a lot of friends on the bus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to why that matters in a minute, dear You listeners. know, there is a, I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the podcast, there is a mental illness that is specific to Israel. Uh, Jerusalem syndrome. Have we talked about this? No. Oh, what is Jerusalem? This. Jerusalem syndrome, where people who believe that they are prophets, uh, sometimes of the Bible, sometimes new prophets, show up in Jerusalem. And why is that unique to Jerusalem? Because I think there are other places where people go and shout a lot in the middle of a public space. So you get it all over, but people come from all over the world to arrive in Jerusalem to proclaim that they, in fact, are the reincarnation of Isaiah uh-huh. or Jeremiah. Jeremiah is always a favorite of these people. I think it's uh, it goes with the personality of getting to condemn a lot. Yeah, yeah, and being agonized. Um, so yeah, in the middle of the public squares, you know, you'd be getting your falafel at the whatever at the stand on the corner, and there's just a guy sitting there. They always have a hair shirt on. I don't know what that's about. But, really, yeah, always huh. a hair shirt, screaming about the end of the world. Where does one go to buy a hair shirt in today's world? Wait, does Walmart sell hair shirts? That's the question. Or Amazon? Can I order a hair shirt? Uh, I I don't see any reason why we can't answer that question. All right. Well, this episode is brought to you by Crazy Amos's Hair Shirt Emporium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all your Jerusalem syndrome needs. Uh, you know there's a store out there that caters to these people. It exists. It's, it's got to be, right? Um, okay. Well, I, I'm i very uh, intrigued, but I'm afraid we probably can't spend that much time. We're talking Jerusalem. about priests, not prophets today. Exactly. That is right. That is right. So for our Midrash dear listeners, basically, uh, there's not a lot, and there's only two for the first 17 verses. Um, now, Daniel, I have a friend who told me recently that she loves our podcast, particularly because it's good to fall asleep to. Um <laughs> So, so this one may be particularly uh, narcolepsy-inducing as we get through these seventeen verses. Well, <laughs> so, my brother tells me he listens to it on double speed. Yeah, yeah, because we we go so slowly. So, uh, crank it up to third speed for, or you know, um, take a little nap for the next five or ten minutes as we get through these verses, and then rejoin us when we get to verse eighteen. Yes. That would be uh, be my suggestion. That's what movie podcasts do when they're discussing spoilers. Um, so we're just <laughs> going to say a very spoiler-laden section of Exodus. Yeah, you are not going to want to listen to this if you haven't already read this chapter. I mean, it's it's thrilling. Thrilling. It is. That's right. Um, and the other podcasts don't care. They'll spoil it for you. But our Exodus-themed podcast, we really care. Yep. Drop us down to 0.7 speed. Have a nice little nap. Rejoin us in 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are so much better than those found at Mount Sinai guys. Exactly. Uh, okay, so jump in. Read, read, start reading, Daniel. Yes. And, and then we'll take over. Uh, this is what you shall do to, uh, to them in consecrating them to serve me as priests. 
take a young bull. Okay. So hold on. Who's the them here? We're talking about Aaron and Moses. I think so. Yeah. Um, take a young bull of the herd and two rams without blemish. Also unleavened bread, unleavened cakes with oil mixed in and unleavened wafers spread with oil. Make these of choice wheat flour. Why these three things? Is this just variety that's happening here? I don't know, but I think communion, the communion wafer would be much more exciting if it was spread with oil. Spread with oil. With, yeah. 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 Uh, or maybe if well, you gave people choices, have you thought of that? Right. Do you want the well, regular wafer, the oil one, or the, you know, we got three choices here. We, we do give people choices because there's a big fad for being gluten-free. Yes. And uh, so we have to have the gluten-free wafer every, yes. every Sunday. The gluten-free wafer actually as someone with celiac disease. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you are in, what is it? What percent of the population has celiac disease? Uh, they say just about one in a hundred in the United States. Okay, so uh, this is this is what the most controversial thing I'm ever going to say on this podcast. <laughs> if you have celiac disease, I have total sympathy, and I'm glad to give you the gluten free wafer. If you do not, I tend to think you just want to feel special. Yes, well, <laughs> <laughs> not to, not to be a jerk about it. You know, I have a love hate relationship with these people. Um, okay, I love that there's so many more gluten free products, and I hate that restaurants don't take me seriously. Right. <laughs> Um, uh well you should my friend my friend Jed is uh like profoundly lactose intolerant and still every time he orders uh uh something without cheese they bring it to him with cheese. Yeah, yeah. He's like yep. a, a constant mode of sending things back. So anyway, yeah. okay. Let's let's go out. Yeah, so there's a variety of flat cakes. Obviously they're unleavened uh to have to do with the Passover, right? Uh yes. Yes, they are all unleavened here. Uh, you know, there's this question of whether or not this really connects with the Passover, whether that's a later uh, connection. Uh, I remember a professor in rabbinical school arguing that these are two separate notions that later are combined. Two separate notions of flatbreads? I uh, know that the, 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 I don't remember. I'm totally forgetting. I shouldn't say anything about this because I'm totally just going to be making up a memory rather than something real. Okay. So, um, you're having a little bit of a Jerusalem syndrome moment. A Jerusalem syndrome uh, moment. Yes. I'm heading, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So take off the hair shirt and let's get back to this. Do you want to keep going <laughs> with first four? Uh, we have verse three, place these oh, in one basket. Yeah. We got to put them somewhere first and present them in the basket along with the bowl and two rams. Which makes it sound like the bull and the ram are in the basket, but they are not. They are presumably not in the basket. That'd be a big basket. Yeah. Uh, okay. Lead Aaron and his sons up to the entrance of the tent of meeting, the Mishkan, and wash them with water. All right. This is one of our midrash. This is one of our midrashim. Yeah. Um, actually. And actually, we skipped the bull. We skipped the bull. Yeah. One young bull. Uh, so there's a reading of this from Midrash Tanhuma that says that this is related to the bull, uh, to the golden calf incident, which was a bull. Right. So don't worship the, the bull, sacrifice the bull. Don't worship it, sacrifice it. it. Yeah. Right. Well, it's also yeah. that this is, uh, a sin offering and that this sin offering is required because of the, uh, because of the golden calf, because of the sin of the golden calf, which is the sort of, uh, it is the big sin for Judaism. 
So it is uh, the fall in the garden for Judaism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the theology becomes totally different, obviously, but it is the closest that we get to a fall theology certainly comes from the golden calf. Yep. And the difference between those two, which I keep finding uh, very interesting as we continue the study, is that for Christianity, the original sin is individual. For Judaism, the sin is communal. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Everything is communal for Judaism. Right, uh, right. Yeah, your obligations so, are communal, your responsibilities are communal. Even if you go to sort of the reward and punishment of Deuteronomy, you know, you keep the commandments, you get the good stuff, you break them, you don't. Uh, that's understood communally, too. Yeah. So that, I mean, that is a somewhat profound difference. Not, not that Christians don't care about community, but we just don't. It's not the primary lens, I would say. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a notion of individual salvation in that sense. And so it, right. you know, radically changes the terms. Right, right. Um, so the the Jerusalem syndrome people in Jerusalem are not calling people to repent for individual salvation. They're they're making a call to communal repentance. Uh, we have all kinds of crazies with their calls who show up in Jerusalem. Don't you worry. Okay. Um, okay. Some are making a call to AT and T, but they all um, stop at uh, Amos's hair shirt. Well, there we go. Um, but what, but that interestingly, that brings us to verse four and the, because it's a mikvah. No, no, it's not. Am I misusing the term? No, you're using it great, right? It's not oh, clear great. here. Okay. Here it just says wash. Uh, Wait, uh, the term mikvah means both the bath and uh, a righteous action. Is that correct? No, mitzvah. Mitzvah, that's what I'm getting mitzvah. wrong. Okay. And mitzvah actually means commandment, but is often used uh, uh, sort of to refer to good deeds. Okay. Okay, so this is a, a, a mikvah, and uh, it's kind of a proto-baptism. Proto-baptism, right? like yeah. Is, so was John the Baptist calling people to mikvah in the Jordan River? Was that the idea? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, in a very real way, and I say this jokingly also, he was really Yoni the mikvah man. Uh, yeah, right, there, right There was nothing non-Jewish about John's context or theology or... Uh, Life, I guess the same is probably true of Jesus. Uh, right. It's only what happens to him afterwards that he becomes a symbol within uh, Christianity. That actually there are Jews, there's evidence of Jews who believe John the Baptist was a messianic figure as late as uh, the 4th century. Mm. The followers of John kept things going for quite a the while. The followers of John, exactly. Exactly. Um, so people like Christians today, though not at the time, um, well, there were no Christians at the time, but not the early followers of Jesus probably didn't read it this way. But a lot of Christians today read the repentance or the, the baptism in the Jordan River as an individual repentance. Mm. John is calling people to individual repentance. But the fact that it's at the Jordan River signifies that it's really communal repentance, right? It's like, let's all take a mikvah to get us back to the point where we came into this chosen land so that we can do it better this time. So the notion of mikvah uh, is deeply connected to uh, purity and impurity that we find. Mm -hmm. uh, impurity and impurity is not moral in its claim. This is important uh, because we often, I think we use these terms to mean good and bad. Uh, yeah. but it's really much closer to sort of fit and unfit to be involved in holy acts. So why would John be calling people out of Jerusalem uh, 
to be bathed in fitness for a holy act. Okay, so the most significant holy act that exists is going to be a part of actually what we're reading about right now, the sacrifices. Yeah. Uh, so you have to be in a state of ritual purity in order to set foot in uh, the temple areas and to participate in these acts or even to witness them. Uh, and in order to achieve that purity, you would immerse yourself in uh, anything that was living water. Uh, so it has to be water that is collected naturally. So today there are mikvahs that look like buildings and sort of look like saunas almost, but they're not treated mm -hmm. with chemicals and the water has to be a certain percentage of it has to be collected totally naturally. Hmm. So, I'm, I, so now I'm totally confused about what John is doing because he's calling people to the Jordan for something that they had to do anyway and have, had to do for centuries previously. Why was that in any way remarkable? Why, why did people pay any attention to this? So I, I don't, I'm taking sort of a guess at John. I don't know a ton about the John movement. Um, I know more about mikvah in antiquity and during this time period, we have Roman occupation and the Romans have put their people in charge of the temple and all of these operations mm -hmm. of sacrifices like we're reading about right now. And so those who were on the fringier end of the spectrum, not the go along, get along types, uh, rejected the priesthood and the sacrifice and everything that was happening at the temple as being fundamentally invalid. Okay. And so certainly the messianic movements, the rabbinic movement, uh, all of these movements that are sharing the fringes, what becomes the Jesus movement, uh, which is one of the messianic movements. Uh, these are the people, the people participating in them who are rejecting the temple. So certainly John the Baptist followers would fall into that. And so my understanding is that what John is saying is that the, a messianic moment is coming when the temple will be restored to its proper uh, sacrificial practices and the government will be restored to its proper Davidic lineage. So okay. Get, so he is preparing all the people for a kind of uh, holy priesthood. Yes, for a messianic moment. He thought it was coming right. any day. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway, we spent a lot of time on that. And, and dear listeners, we are still planning to do Luke and Acts after this, and we will spend quite a bit of time talking about this again, I'm sure. So there's a lot of Oh, yeah. Keys. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Anyway, verse five. Sh shall I read for a little bit? Yeah, maybe, maybe that'd be better. Yeah. We're, okay. we're not making good time with yeah. my reading. Okay. And you shall take the garments and dress Aaron and the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate. And you shall gird him with the band of the ephod and you shall put the turban on his head and you shall set the holy diadem on the turban and you shall take the anointing oil and pour it over his head and you shall anoint him. And his sons you shall bring forward and dress them in tunics, and you shall belt them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and set the so figure on them. I, I just want to pause here for a second because I want us to keep track of how gross these clothing are becoming. <laughs> There's a lot, man, and they're all super oily. Right? So so just pausing here, Aaron has oil poured all over his clothing so far. Right. And let's keep going. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> And the priesthood shall be for them a perpetual statute, and you shall install Aaron and his sons, and you shall bring forth the bull before the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the bull's head, and you shall slaughter the bull before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So I think it's worth paying attention to what we have here in 9 also, uh, that you shall ordain Aaron and his sons after him. Mm-hmm. 
because that is the fundamental notion of the priesthood is we are creating a caste system here. Right. A hereditary priesthood. Yeah. 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 And it is a social class. It is a caste. They are kept separate. They have separate uh, rights and obligations and sources of revenue and jobs. And they're like uh, Brahmins in India. Yeah. 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 Fundamentally at some level. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, going on on verse 12, and you shall take the bull's blood and place it on the horns of the altar with your finger and all the blood you shall spill upon the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fats that cover the entrails and the lobe on the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and turn them to smoke on the altar and the bull's flesh and its hide and it's done. You shall burn in fire outside the camp. It is an offense. And it smells. Yeah. And the one ram you shall take, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the ram's head, and you shall slaughter the ram, and take its blood, and throw it upon the altar all around. And the ram you shall cut up by its parts, and wash its entrails and its limbs, and put them on its cut parts with its head. And you shall turn the ram to smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing fragrant, a fire offering to the Lord. Okay, so they are a special caste, because at this point they are oily, they are bloody, they are covered with dun. Um, you can see why people are like, we respect you a lot, but please go over there. Yes. Yes. I keep thinking of, you know, you've got the high priest who's doing all this stuff, but you know, there are like 17 teenage boys over there who are like, man, I got to clean the freaking ephod again. Exactly. And it is seriously, Aaron, you got to spill it all over every time. I, you know, I can just imagine it. Being Aaron's son sucks is what we're discovering. <laughs> no, I think it's being Aaron's son's friends that oh, probably oh, is okay. so awful, have, right? Well, yeah. Well, okay. Um, um, so, Basically, if the third temple uh, descends from on high and you, my friend, uh, are a priest there, you are uh, – I will be incredibly glad that we actually don't live in the same city and podcast. I don't the like gross. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Things are going to get super gross for you. Um, yeah. Okay. But we have – we now have gotten through verse 17. Listeners, see how easy that was. Wake up from your nap. Uh, because we are now back to the Midrash. So there, there is a little tiny Midrash for this verse 18 about the burn offering, isn't there? Uh, not a Midrash. This was actually just something that I noticed in oh, the Hebrew right. that I thought was interesting. Well, this is uh, your Midrash. It's my Midrash. <laughs> um, turn all the ram into smoke upon the altar. So this, this is unlike most sacrifices, this is a sacrifice that is totally burnt up. Mm-hmm. We're going to see the paradigm of most sacrifices in just a moment. But this one's totally burnt up. Uh, and I just thought it was kind of neat. The verb that's used to talk about burning it entirely, uh, hiktarta, is a verbal form of kitoret, which is the word for incense. Okay, so this is what we what probably so sacrifice has several meanings or can have several meanings, and one that this reading of Exodus has taught me is that one of the meanings can be sharing a meal with God, right? Like modern animal lovers or vegetarians such as yourself might look at this and be like, that is super gross. I don't know why people ever did it. Um, but one reason they did it was they want to invite divinity into, into their meal making. Um, but here we have sacrifice to something different. There's no part of this animal left for, to share a meal with the divine. Uh, what you so this is really more kind of a traditional sense of sacrifice, which is giving something up that you need or want or love uh, for the sake of the divine. It's the kind of 
self-sacrifice we hear. Yes. Okay. Yeah. This is a total burning of it. Um, but the, the verb, if we were going to put it into English is something like insensify, uh, the ram on the altar Insensify the ram. Uh, um, like in the, the incense term, not in the make it mad or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, now, now I'll tell you what's interesting that in terms of sacrifice, the word in Hebrew doesn't mean sacrifice at all. There's no connection between these meanings. Uh, the word in Hebrew for a sacrifice, korban, means to draw close. Interesting. So even used here, so this is like draw close to the ram by turning it into smoke? Uh, no, this isn't, the word sacrifice isn't used here, or what we usually transfer, uh, uh, translate it as. The word instead is smokeify. Smoke, <laughs> yeah, insensify, right? That was my, yeah. Yeah. Um, huh. So yeah, but the, the typical word is korban, a sacrifice, which we translate as sacrifice, but really just means karov, close to draw near. Okay. So you draw near to the Lord in some sense through these, these ritual actions in the temple and at the altar. Yeah. That these actions actually are sort of bridging the, uh, heavenly and earthly realms. Okay. So Aaron's friends, when they're cleaning the ephod, are saying to themselves, uh, you know, this is super gross, but at least we bridge the, the heavenly and earthly realms. We drew close to the divine. And think how jealous those kids over there who don't get to do this are. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Can you tell I live with three little children here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I have an only child, so she doesn't have the same jealousy issues towards the place. <laughs> <laughs> Not to say she's never been jealous of anyone. Uh, okay. We're on verse 19. Uh, verse 19. I think we're making better time when you read. Okay. And you shall take the second ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the ram's head, and you shall slaughter the lamb, and take of its blood, and put it on the right earlobe of Aaron, and the right earlobe of his sons, and on their right thumb, and on their right big toe, and you shall throw the blood on the altar all around. This is very specific. See, Shmuley, the ephod cleaner on the side, is sitting there going, okay, do not, do not put your hand on the ephod, Aaron. Do not it's just all I can imagine here. What? Why the big toe? Uh, everything on the right side. All of the limbs of the right side, I guess. Okay. In- interesting. You know, uh, this is so foreign to us, but there's something so raw about this. I mean, this is a sanctification of the border between life and death. Uh, and it is something we hide from, right? Whether we're talking about humans or animals, we certainly hide from it with yeah. animals. Yeah. Uh, right. We, we pay lots of other people to create a product that is meat, which is totally removed from the slaughter of an animal. Yes. Um, and we do it with humans too. I mean, right. We know this as clergy, how often we try to put people who are dying in the ideas of death far away. Right. Right. Um, and, and death itself. Well, I, I, I mean, frankly, I find it, as gross as this, as, as we practice it now, you know, like my, my mom died a year and a half ago and her being plugged into all those machines mm-hmm. was no more, uh, appetizing or kind or beautiful than this. I mean, this is, it, it felt like this in a lot of ways, except yeah. not, except not sacred. Not so, sacred. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, and you shall take of the blood of, that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkling, sprinkle them on Aaron and on his garments, on his son's garments and on his face together with them. And he shall be consecrated. He and his garments and his sons and his son's garments together with him. Okay. What does consecration mean in this sense? Status. Okay. So this, what we're really reading about, this is how you make a priest. Is that right? Like, is this an ordination, right? That we're reading here. So this is how you, yeah. Is this an ordination, right? Um, yeah, this is an ordination, right? That we're reading. That's exactly what we're reading. Okay. I hadn't thought of it this way. Um, well, my own ordination seems so much nicer now. Uh, I was not covered in blood excrement and innards and oil at the end of it. Yeah. But man, is this raw, right? I mean, you can see why this has a holy sense to it. Right. My, I don't know about you. My ordination was so, um, polite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I often think about that in terms of Christian baptism too, which is also very polite, but I was actually, uh, I was part of a social group in college, uh, that had an all night initiation, right. And at the end of it, we were lifted bodily and dunked into a, a giant barrel full of rainwater. <laughs> There's nothing polite about it. And to me, like that was a much more significant act in some way. I mean, it didn't mean anything for my future life, except I got to be part of the social group. But but the, the ritual symbolism was more powerful than normal Christian baptism. Huh. Yeah. I mean, there's something raw to this whole thing. Yeah. Um, but I keep being struck by the intersection of rawness and the mundane. Right. It is raw and it is an incredible ritual, but this is also the operations of the temple that are happening constantly every day. The noises, the smells, the commerce, the. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I, when the temple was operating, like the second temple, were they making priests in exactly this way? You know, so you had all, you had what, how many different groups of priests? 10 or 12? So you can't make priests. Oh, right. That's, you're, you're, you're born, born as a priest. Okay. Um, you know, you'll certainly have initiation ceremonies for when you begin uh, various kinds of service, you would imagine. Yeah. Right. And the levels and types of priesthood would have been diverse in terms of what they were doing physically. Right. I mean, I, I keep joking about it, but certainly there were people whose jobs it was to clean. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So here we're getting a sort of ceremony of the high priesthood. Okay, and this is an ordination in blood. In blood. Um, yeah. Uh, but what's this happening at... at <laughs> I like that. Ordination in blood. Yeah, this is good. I know. Um, what's this happening at the time of, uh, of Jesus? Yeah, certainly we would imagine that these rituals continue, right? These are okay. given... I mean, the reason these are in here and the reason we're preserving them is so that they can be copied when you need a new high priest. Okay, so this didn't just happen once to Aaron and his sons. No, uh, this becomes the, the paradigm. Okay. Okay, well, fantastic. Uh, okay, uh, chapter, uh, verse 22, And you shall take from the ram the fat and the broad tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the lobe on the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, and the right thigh, for it is an installation ram. What? The installation? Oh, they're installing the priesthood with this ram. Yeah, in fact, um, uh, my translation is a ram of ordination. 
Well, installation RAM sounds like something I've done to my computer. So <laughs> I'm kind of happy that your translation is different. Uh, anyway, going on. And one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer from the basket of flatbread that is before the Lord. Uh, and you shall put it on it all on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his son and elevate it as an elevation offering before the Lord. Don't you feel like they should wash their hands first? <laughs> really, I hope they wash their hands at some point, but I don't know. All the hand washing in the world may not be enough to make up for this. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have a midrash here, right? And this is Rashi. Uh, this is Rashi and he's picking it up from the Talmud. Okay. Verse 24. You want to read it? Uh, he would wave it to and fro to the one to whom the four directions of the world belong. The waving back and forth does away with punishment and harmful winds. The lifting up consisted of raising and lowering to the one to whom the heavens and earth belong. And it keeps back harmful dues. So we've got a understanding of this, uh, a classical understanding of this is that it is essentially a magical act like Aaron, uh, excuse me, like Moses with his staff turning into a snake or holding it up to part the waters. What we've got here is that this act itself also has significance, right. um, mystical significance. So is this a point where, where they're putting their arm through each other's sleeves? Uh, yes. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. That's in a moment. That's for your okay. typical. Yep. yep. Okay. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll get, get to there. that. We'll get okay, there. so um, this description of where you're waving your hands and why sounds like some of the body spirituality that I've I've seen done before workshops and retreats. Uh, um, yeah, something kind of yogic about it. Uh, so there's a there's a little bloody dance going on here. Yes, okay. yes. I I guess my question too though is we we don't have these particular rituals, but both of us come from high ritual traditions. Are there rituals that we believe have, I'm not sure what the right word is here, right? Cosmic efficiency, maybe. Yeah. That they affect uh, the weather and the world and everything else. Or even that they affect the divine and, or or affect us in ways that are not um, psychological or physical. Um. Well, communal, certainly, you know, like baptism is a right of, of making one part of the community. So there's that. But um, definitely, this is not current theology, but definitely in Christian theology, like you would say masses for the dead. Oh, totally. I, I guess I mean us today. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So so the long and the short of it is, I think I may have talked uh before about Cyril of Jerusalem, this, this Christian, early Christian patriarch, you know, who said that, that the Eucharist was essentially about maintaining the cosmos so that only if you only had two people there, or if you did it yourself, it did not matter because it was not about making community. It was about keeping the cosmos running. Yep. Yep. We have a Jewish versions of the exact same idea. Right. So th- there's a way in which all the sacrifice, it really is a kind of machinery of the divine. You know, it's uh, it's a machine that we keep running so that the world will exist. Now, th- I don't think people currently really believe that much, but so that I, idea is there. Why do we do our rituals then? Right. Why, why do we put such stock? And again, we both come from high ritual traditions. Why? Yeah. Why keep doing them? 
And why value the ritual itself then? Uh, I mean, I can answer in part from Alexander Shmemam, who um, the the Diakono students are reading right now, as a matter of fact. Um, but he would say that we have a false distinction between the sacred and the profane, that we uh, – that well, – I don't know, maybe since the Enlightenment, you know, there's this idea that there's a, a sacred place or sacred – thing called sacrality and then there's a thing called secularism or or the the secular and he doesn't believe it at all he says it's all the same thing and that this is a dualism um that is meant to control us uh which i think is really interesting yeah. um uh so we do from my perspective we do these rituals in order to try and undo some of that understanding you know and that's why our rituals really are so mundane you know like Compared to what we just read, uh, the Eucharist is boring, you know. Um, but if the Eucharist is about the meal, right? It's about reminding us that when we go to our homes and we eat our daily meals, um, those are sacred acts. God is with us in that, just like God is with us in everything. Um, so we don't we don't have a very huge distinction. Uh, between the sacred and the profane and what we do. Hmm. I like that. Well, I think that's true of Judaism too, right? Like most of your rituals are home-based. Yeah. 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 No, I, I resonated very much with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So this, this entire idea or this entire way of doing things has really fallen out of fashion. Yeah. I, you know, I wonder if there's, you mentioned that the Eucharist certainly doesn't have this, but do you think there was a time when the Eucharist had that? Had that? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a whole um, there's a whole world of liturgical bling, which is about the sacrality of the Eucharist. You know, there are things like monstrances, which you would put the the priest host in, and then you would parade it around so people could just look at it. It had that much power. Uh, there's something called an umbrellino, which is an umbrella that you would hold above the monstrance as you processed it through city streets so that a bird, for instance, couldn't poop on it, uh, you know, to keep it from any any form of the profane. Yeah. So, yeah, these are, you know, these ideas were are, are still alive in, like, high, high liturgy. Um. You know, I even here in Columbus, there's a church full of wonderful people. Uh, but when I go to celebrate the Eucharist there, it always takes me by surprise because uh, people just stick out their tons and I'm supposed to put the wafer on it, on their ton. Um, because the idea is it's so holy that the, they shouldn't besmirch it with their hands. Um, so anyway, yeah, some of these ideas are still alive. See, my head just goes straight to the mundane. All I'm thinking of is the Purell bottle that needs to be waiting on the other end of you doing that. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> well, and, and my, I mean, my problem with it is I don't know, I'm, I don't feel like I'm any holier than, than the people. Yeah. So why is my touch okay and theirs not? Yeah, interesting. You know, I, just, I don't get it. But, um, yeah. Uh, but I suppose that the same thing is here. I mean, the, the simple, answer is I am ordained just like Aaron and his sons were ordained. So they get to do this stuff. Yeah. So, um, so, and I've gone through a ritual that gives me permission to do this stuff. Just like we're hearing here. Just like we're hearing. Um, 
Okay. Speaking of which, where, where did we stop? Well, let me just also say then that that also becomes not about moral fitness, but about purity, right? Like my ordination did not make the claim that I am more morally fit than any other Christian, which is good because I'm not, but it did make the claim that I am now purified in some way. Well, status, right? You've, it is a different status. It's a marker. Right. Um, And then that's what they're talking about here. You've been, in fact, literally that's what the word means, right? Consecrated, uh, It's worth noting that in Hebrew, the word for holiness, kadosh, fundamentally means set aside, separate. Yeah, right. So we have been set aside for a certain type of work. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we're on verse 25. I just talked a lot. Do you want to read for a bit? Sure. Uh, Take them from their hands and turn them into smoke upon the altar with the burnt offering as a pleasing odor before the Lord. It is an offering by fire to the Lord. Then take the breast of Aaron's ram of ordination and offer it as an elevation offering before the Lord. It shall be your portion, meaning priests, you get to eat it. Mm -hmm. You shall consecrate the breast that was offered as an elevation offering and the thigh that was offered as a gift offering from the ram of ordination, from that which was Aaron's and from that which was his son's. Okay, what is the difference between an elevation offering and a gift offering? So we've got all sorts of different categories of sacrifices uh, in the ritual involved in them changes and the obligations that uh, necessitate them changes. So there's some that you have to do when you've committed a certain kind of sin. There's some that you have to do simply as an obligation. There's some that you can do out of your own goodwill as a Thanksgiving offering for a good event. There's a, um, and each uh-huh. of them has a different ritual uh, and use. And so we're getting some of the details here that of the gift offerings, uh, the priests get this piece to keep and of the, uh, uh, elevation offerings, they get to keep that piece of the animal because we're fundamentally talking about food and where they get their food from. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and if we think of these offerings as different ways of being with God, it's like, well, you, you need to be with God one way when you're feeling grateful and you need to be with one God, God another way when, Someone else is going on. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Uh, And these parts shall be due for all time from the Israelites to Aaron and his descendants, right? This is how the priests eat. For they are a gift, and so shall they be a gift from the Israelites and uh, Israelites, their gift to the Lord out of their sacrifices of well-being. You know, there is something here, right? Because at some level, these are gifts to the Lord, and at some level, these are gifts to the priests. Yeah. And we certainly yeah. deal with that contradiction also within our work. Yeah. I mean, tithing, yeah. uh, you know, in a lot of churches, the priest salary takes up about 70% of the overall budget. So really people aren't giving directly to the priests. They just don't make that clear. Yes. Yes. So um, is that true in Judaism? I mean, synagogues, like how much of the budget yeah. goes to pay the yeah, rent? Yeah. Something like that. Um, certainly okay. goes into staffing and it's such a funny yeah. dynamic that's created because then you are, the employer of someone you're paying to puts you spiritually. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird dynamic and and I'm not sure I like it, but nor can I think of any other possibility. Um, so anyway, okay. Uh, verse 29 and the sacral gar- sacral garments that are Aaron shall belong to his sons after him to be anointed in them and to be installed in them. Seven days, the priest and his stud among his So again, son think of them. how gross those things are, right? Like, it's yeah. not just yours. This was great grandpa's gross ephod. Right. <laughs> and uh, 
Why seven days? Do you have to wear them? Uh, this is a period of completion. Okay, so you have to wear them for seven days after the sacrifice? Uh, at least after the ordination would be the idea. Okay, so you have these oily, bloody, gutty, uh, crappy garments, and instead of getting to take them off right away, you got to wear them for seven days. Seven days, exactly. This is absolutely an initiation ritual. Um, but there is a, well, you can see, there's a notion that this sorry. is magical, that you put these on and you become the high priest. So this is the transformational period. Yeah, so you have to you have to be the high priest for that period of of creation. You have to wear these garments for the period of creation. Yes, um, and you can see that this really would set people apart. That after this, it should be pretty clear that they're different. Yes. Yes. Okay. And Aaron and his sons with him shall eat the ram's flesh and the bread that is in the basket at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they for whom atonement is made shall eat them to install them, to consecrate them. And no stranger shall eat them, for they are holy. So eating helps to consecrate the priest. Yeah, that all of these have sacred meaning, right? That this food that has been consecrated, that then when the priests eat it, it changes them, right? And only the priests can touch that food. Anyone who's not a priest doesn't have access to and would be a terrible sin to eat from that food that has been set aside for those people who have been set aside. So the food has really changed in some way. Yes. It's a different substance than it was before this ritual. Or it has a status that is similar to the priests now. And you have to eat food that is of your status. Food with status. Um, this is like the Whole Foods slogan. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> thank you for thank you. For that. Uh, oh, that was really good. Anyway. I like that. Okay, good, good. I like that. <laughs> okay, going out for thirty-four. Uh, and if something is left over from the flesh of insulation and from the bread until morning, you shall burn what is left in fire. It shall not be eaten, for it is holy. And it's gross if you leave meat out overnight. Yeah. So don't don't let your status food get rotty. Yes. Uh, and you shall do thus for Aaron and his sons, as all that I have charged you, seven days you shall install them. Wow. And an offense offering bowl you shall prepare for each day, and you shall purge the altar as you atone over it, and you shall anoint it to consecrate it. So during these seven days, uh, one has is wearing these garments and feeling this kind of constant feeling of offense. I don't... We have to separate sin offerings out from sin here. Okay. Um, sin offerings are a way of consecrating a space by creating a purity. Right? A, a sin offering in that sense is negating s sin. And it's a very different notion of sin than sort of uh, Orthodox Christian notions of sin here. Uh, yeah. So impurity. Yeah. So it's negating impurity. So when it says you shall atone over this offense offering, it's meaning uh, you shall be pure and the offering shall be pure. Yeah, I mean, what we're, and you shall you shall be losing on purity. Exactly, and we're doing this every day for seven days because we're making sure that it's like the most intense of spiritual, physical states. Right. Okay. Right. For seven days, constantly we're keeping it in this status, and constantly we're making sure that any any sort of badness that could enter is taken care of with the 
sin offerings and with the, this is a constant, uh, spiritual process. So does the seven days here imply that at creation, the world was pure? Yeah. It's not where my head goes. My head goes that seven is a complete unit, right? Seven is the number of days in creation. It becomes the number of days in a week. And so it becomes a complete cycle for the priest to go through, uh, well, the reason I ask is uh, Terence Fredheim at the colloquium a few weeks ago uh, said several times that God made the world good, but that doesn't mean God made the world perfect. And part of our role, part of our purpose is to help perfect it. I would say that's a very classically Jewish idea right there. Every piece of that. Okay. Okay. Um, in fact, the classical Judaism, or at least Judaism of the last 50, 500 plus years would say uh, that that is the reason that humanity is created. We are created to be the continuers of the acts of creation. We, we Creation didn't finish. Our job is to finish it. So there's this term, tikkun? Am I yeah, tikkun right? alam, the repair of the world. Right, but is that a correct translation? Because it's not that we're repairing the world. Yeah, because that that phrase seems to imply that the world was fine, but somehow now it's broken. Uh, so, tikkun olam, the phrase itself goes back to, it goes back really far. But the way that we mean it today uh, is related to something called Lurianic Kabbalah. Kabbalah, right, we're familiar with from the, like, yeah. Madonna yeah. doing it. Uh, exactly. Jewish mysticism. Uh, but Lurianic Kabbalah uh, has this myth uh, that at the very beginning of creation, there was just God. And in order for there to be a space for creation, God had to contract God's self. Have we not talked about this? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if we have keep going. God has to contract God's self. So if you imagine that, like if God has to create a space where there, where God is not, Mm -hmm. uh, then what happens to the peace of God that was filling that space that now does not have God? The, and in that sense, we're calling it divine yes, overflow. Yeah, we have talked about this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we've talked about this. Um, so anyways, this gets poured, this divine overflow gets poured into vessels. These vessels can't possibly hold the divine overflow. They crack and they spread throughout the universe. God creates humans to go and find the broken shards of creation and redeem the sparks of holiness within them. So that's why we have this phrase, tikkun olam, the repair of the world. Um, it comes from this myth, which no one believes to be a literal thing at all. Um, it's just no, the etymology uh, now. And, and when I first heard it, I liked it, but today I'm wondering if I do like it because it does have that implication. It, I mean, it has a kind of Christian understanding of the fall, right? Something was perfect. Now it's broken. It needs to be redeemed. Um, but what, what, what you were just describing here and what Fredheim was describing is a completely different idea. You know, nothing was perfect. We're contributing as we go. Right? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I would say that's the Jewish notion. Okay, the, even of Tikkun Yes, because the world is only created in response and humanity is only created in response to the creation of the world. And in that sense, our job is to continue the work of creation. Okay. Um, though I think it's interesting. I talked to priests and uh, uh, pastors, Christian clergy, when I talk to them, pick up on this as an important distinction in a way I've never had that conversation in a Jewish space. Huh, interesting. I don't know what that says, but yeah. 
Um, I think it says that we are feeling, uh, Christians are feeling a certain amount of discomfort with uh, uh, tra- traditional theodicy and the idea of the fall, and we're kind of casting uh, around interesting. for other ways to think about why God needs us. Uh, so anyway, I'll, I'll just leave it there. Okay. What verse were we on, my friend? Um, uh, 38, I believe. 38? We're making no, no, 37. We did not do 37. Seven days shall you perform the purification for the altar to consecrate it, and the altar shall become most holy. Whoever touches the altar shall become consecrated. So this act is both consecrating the priesthood, but at the same time it's consecrating the altar. Yes. And uh, actually there's a midrash that says that this is a get-out-of-jail-free card. That you're, you're fundamentally not allowed to ever offer a sacrifice on the altar that is not perfectly fit. And the Midrash says, and so what happens? This table, anyone or anything that touches is, it becomes perfectly fit. And so just in case the sacrifice wasn't perfect, once it touches it, it's perfect. Yeah, so this answers a question I had, which is you would consecrate a person one time and then they would be a priest. Why do you have to keep consecrating the altar if there aren't different well, altars? Again, you, you don't consecrate them to become a priest. You consecrate them to become the high priest. Priestly status oh, okay. you were born into. Um, there's Right, right, right. Okay. Okay. So, but basically what I'm saying is every time there's a new high priest, the altar, in effect, gets re-consecrated. Yeah. Are they physically different altars, or is there an idea that there's been this kind of buildup of uh, mistakes um, and that this clears them away? So more the second than the first, but I would say that there is always a notion that there's a buildup of mistakes because that is the fundamental notion of sin in Judaism is that it is mistakes. Um, it is missing the mark. It is being less than perfect. Right. And so the process of recognizing and correcting it is what we are supposed to do. It's not that there is something inherently um, evil about those mistakes, if that makes sense. Okay. It does. It does. They're just mistakes. They, they don't actually speak to something um, internal to us. They just speak to the fact that people make mistakes. Correct. They, they speak to the distance between who you have been and who God sees when God looks at you. You know, I've, so I was just listening to a podcast this morning about whether sex addiction is real. And they were pointing out that, you know, Harvey Weinstein and others keep making this move where they claim like, um, what seemed, which, what seems to be really a weird claim, right? Like, it's not that I made mistakes. It's that there's something fundamentally wrong with me, right? And you would think that that would be much worse than saying, oh, I made mistakes and now I can correct them. But for some reason, people think it's better to have something fundamentally wrong with you than to just make mistakes. Well, I think it's a way of not having it be your fault, right? I guess, but isn't it, isn't it, entirely your fault i mean you know because it's and then it has to do with your nature and your nature is you you know so it is your fault because what you're saying is i'm insanely flawed (laughs) yeah 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 anyway we're running out of time but i don't want to go off on too 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 big a tangent but it just it, it that continually strikes me as odd you know why why do we somehow think it's better for something to be inherently wrong with us that it is for us just to have made a series of mistakes. I don't get it. Huh. Anyway. I, okay. I, it, I think it speaks to what we think of as us. 
right? Yeah, it does. So. That's a big question right there. Uh, we we will get into that further because that's one of the big questions of my life. So um, I will want to talk about that with you more and more. But not now because, dear listeners, we are at like 50 minutes, 51 minutes. So we got to finish. We got to finish it up. Now. Bring this in under an hour. Um, the one lamb you shall do in the morning and the other lamb you shall do at twilight. And the tenth of the measure of fine flour mixed with a quarter hin of beaten oil and a quarter hin libation of wine for the one lamb. And the other lamb you shall do at twilight like the morning's grain offering. And it's oblation you shall do it as a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. A perpetual burnt offering for your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I shall meet with you there to speak to you. And I shall meet there with the Israelites, and it shall be consecrated through my glory. By the way, there is a, like, 2,500-year-old debate happening within Judaism as to where exactly it is that God is speaking from. Above the altar, by the ark, what's happening here? Um, Where is God sitting while this conversation is going on? Yes, and the only thing they all agree on is that the other people are wrong. Right, well, that's always true. Um, I have found in my life that other people are always right. It's really me, you and I both. Yeah. Um, and that is why I have a Jerusalem complex. And I'm not <laughs> <here now. laughs> um, anyway, I show uh, going on verse 43 and I shall meet there with the Israelites and it shall be consecrated through my glory. And I shall consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and Aaron and his sons. I shall consecrate to the priest to me and I shall abide in the midst of the Israelites and I shall be God to them. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt for me to abide in their midst. I am the Lord, their God. Yeah, I love this ending, right? Because it's the combination of the whole idea here, which is the holy and the mundane. That there is this constant gross process that's happening and the cleaning that's going on with it and that it is supposed to change us and affect us somehow. Right. Now, uh, is this the end of the Torah portion? This is not the end of the Torah portion. Okay. Well, that's strange because it feels like a very endy thing to repeat, I am the Lord your God, several times. It does. But to our dear listeners, I should warn you that it is not the end of the Torah portion probably means we've got more priestly content yet to come. Yeah. So I'm looking ahead, right? Uh, And it will be two more episodes before we get to the golden calf, Um, which, you know, so mark your calendars. That'll be exciting. Yes. Uh, Um, I have a guest for us for next week. Sweet. Who? Uh, Katie Vogel. She is the social media editor of the Cincinnati Inquirer, the newspaper. Uh, And she has started an emergent Jewish community here in uh, Cincinnati that is uh, based around sort of traditional textual study. You have uh, super interesting friends, Uh, I have to say. Yeah, I'm excited for her to be on. I'm excited for her to be on. Uh, and a couple more guests. I'm hoping Rabbi Lindsay Danziger is going to join us in a few weeks. She is the rabbi who's in charge of Reform Ohio, which is a Jewish uh, political action community organizing social justice group. Um, cool. And uh, then an old high school teacher of mine who almost became a priest and once he retired, moved to Guatemala to uh, uh, do mission work for the rest of his life is going to join us. That is amazing. All right, Daniel, you're really doing, you're getting your producer credit. There you go. I got to get it somehow. In a big way. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, well, so that is the end of this week's event-filled uh, podcast full of blood and guts, this one was. Uh, Daniel, do you have anything that you want to promote before we I have go? no promotions this week. Nothing. I don't really have any promotions either. Life is getting very quiet. Um, which frankly I welcome. Uh, okay. So thank you for listening to lost in the wilderness, which is made possible by the very kind auspices of the, of Christchurch cathedral in Cincinnati and the diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, our theme music is by Brianna Kelly, uh, from her album, all things are being made new. And, uh, I'm Carl Stevens. Have a great week, everyone. Take care. All right. Bye.